in prayer. Father, we thank you first for the grace of seeing another year. Uh, providentially, this first Lord's Day is also the first day of 2023, the year of our Lord. Lord, first we um, must acknowledge <coughs> that it is only because of your grace and your mercy to us sinners that we are able to see this year, another year. There are many, Lord, who do not cross over overnight. But Lord, we're here. And it is not because of anything that we have done, anything special about us. Lord, it's purely by your grace and your mercy toward uh, your creation that we have lived to see yet another year. And so, Father, first we want to acknowledge our gratitude to you for blessing us to stand before you on this day, January the 1st, 2023. And also, we want to acknowledge as many people can get superstitious this time of year. Many people think that the changing of the calendar can somehow magically change them. Many of us make resolutions which are in and of themselves not bad. Lord, many people this time of year resolve to, to do things. They resolve change in their lives and and frankly, Lord, they resolve for other people to change also to, to make their lives more convenient and more comfortable. Well, some people treat the turning of the calendar as some type of superstition or some type of magic where, you know, open sesame, everything is changed and everything is new and everything is different. You know, they proclaim new year and new me and new this and new that. But Lord, we know those of us of your word know that change does not happen on the outside until change happens on the inside. Well, we know that true change happens when our hearts are changed, when our hearts have been regenerated, when we go from being children of darkness to children of light, when we go more from being children of wrath to ch children and heirs and co-heirs with Christ. Lord, we know that true change happens when we repent of our sins, repent of our rebellion, and, and we turn to Christ, plead on his mercy, call out to him to save us. And when he does that, Father, he sends his spirit to regenerate our hearts Given us a new nature. Given us new desires. Given us, Lord, a desire to worship, honor, love you, and serve you. To give us new desires to love our neighbor as ourself. To give us new desires to not sin, but to hate our sin. Lord, we thank you that that is the true change that everybody seeks. It's not going to happen by just the change of another calendar year. So Lord, I'm praying this morning for those who are seeking change. Those who do want things to change in their life. That Lord, the only true change that can happen is when we are saved. And Lord, even with that salvation does not mean 
that all of a sudden we're not going to have problems, that we're not going to have to deal with sin in this world and the sin that lies within us. But Lord, that change does mean that despite those things that happen, despite the turmoil in this world, despite what happens around us, that Lord, we have peace with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what every person seeks, but Lord, they, they try to attain that without acknowledging the very God who gives that. And Lord, that is a fool's errand. So Father, this morning I pray for all of us in here, in this congregation, in this sanctuary, and those who are watching on Facebook and those who will hear the sermon podcast. Lord, that we all look to you to change us, to transform us, to conform us to the image of Christ. Lord, that is change that is lasting. The eternal life that we have in Christ Jesus is that change that we seek. And Lord, may we seek after that this morning. Lord, we pray for uh, Brother Dale and Mary who have COVID, who have contracted it, Lord, that you be with them, and that you heal them, Lord, that you provide them comfort that they need in this time as they deal with the sickness. We don't know the severity of it, Lord, but whatever the case may be, Father, that you, you uh, touch them and heal them. Lord, we pray for anyone else among our congregation who's dealing with sickness right now that you may visit them, Lord, with your grace and your love and that you may you may heal them also. Lord, we pray this morning that you comfort the brokenhearted, comfort those who are grieving. Continue to comfort Emily and her family as she deals with the loss of her father a few weeks ago. Lord, we know that that sting does not leave uh, right away after everyone disperses from the funeral and family members go back to their various homes. Lord, that, that grief is still there. Lord, we know that she grieves with hope. She doesn't grieve as unbelievers who are without hope. Lord, she grieves being comforted by the fact that her father is resting with you. And that one day she will see him. And she will see her risen Savior just as he is seeing him right now. And Lord, that is the great comfort that uh, we have. And Lord, we pray that you continue to minister to her and to her family by your spirit and, and comfort them this morning, Lord. Lord, we also pray for uh, our sister churches this morning, Anderson Bible, Grace Fellowship, Christian Fellowship, Redeemer. Also, Lord, the brothers at uh, Iron City and Mountain View uh, Church here in Anderson, Lord, that you be with all of us this morning. That, Lord, you strengthen our churches. That you strengthen our fellowships. That you strengthen our faith. That you fill all of our memberships with unity and love. Lord, that you enable our congregations to fight the battles of the Lord with prayer. As the culture seeks to rise up against the church and against your truth, Lord. Fill us. Enable us, Lord, to fight your battles with prayer, with endurance that we may persevere in our faith. With a bold Christian witness, Lord, not backing down, 
not cowering, not compromising. And Lord, may we do all this with gospel obedience. That we obey your word. That we be faithful to your truth. That us as men who are leading your churches, well, sometimes pastoral ministry can be very discouraging. Sometimes, Lord, it can seem like, why do it? Why persevere in it? Why keep going? Lord, I pray that you persevere all of us, me and leading our churches. Persevere us in this work, Lord. And Lord, continue to bring faithful people to our churches. People who are faithful to serving the flock. Also serving the leaders as the leaders serve them. Faithful givers to your church. And faithful servants. Faithful disciples of one another. Faithful encouragers of the flock. Lord bring all of us. People who are committed to those ways. And Lord lastly we pray for the ministry of your word this morning. As we talk about Christian liberty. And what it means to be free in Christ. Lord, many believers this morning are bound by legalism and bound by trying to do things to be justified by you instead of resting in what we have in Christ as justified ones. Lord, fill me with your spirit to preach this text well in Galatians and send your spirit, Lord, to illuminate the truths that we will hear this morning. The call to stand firm in the liberty to which we have been called. Help us Lord. Assist us. Fill us with your spirit. Encourage us. Encourage the weak. Convict sinners to repentance. And may you be glorified. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, after taking a break last Sunday. Uh, preaching through uh, Matthew 1 and um, our Christmas message, so to speak. We're back in Galatians, so let us turn our attention to the fifth chapter. And our title this morning is Freedom in Christ. That, that freedom word is there. We're going to talk about freedom in Christ. Excuse me, three words. Freedom, the preposition in, and then the person of Christ. Freedom in Christ. We'll look at verses 1 through 12 this morning. And this is the word of the Lord. It says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor, to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we 
through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I shall preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would cut themselves off or mutilate themselves. Amen. If you read this passage, which I hope you did, you see Paul's passion for the Galatians. His passion for all believers to live in the freedom that we have in Christ as opposed to living in bondage. Paul, in this passage, announces judgment uh, for those who turn from the gospel. Those who turn to the law for salvation will cut themselves off from salvation. And so Paul warns and encourages his readers to stay free. Andrew Gramacki, uh, the theologian, uh, noted that this is very interesting here. After the Civil War, a great majority of slaves became sharecroppers. And this is a uh, historical fact. After the slaves were emancipated uh, in uh, 1865 and beyond, a great majority of them became sharecroppers. In other words, they became indentured servants. They worked still. Most of them worked for their masters, but they uh, were paid a share of the crop that they raised. That's where they get the word sharecropper from. Although they were free, they did not enjoy their freedom. In some cases, he says, they were worse off than before. They were worse off as sharecroppers than they were before as slaves. And so under the influence of the Judaizers here in this passage, the Galatians were beginning to find themselves in a similar situation. They were set free by the great emancipator of our soul, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. But they soon were acquiescing or giving in to the demands of the legalists to be circumcised. And so what Paul is doing here is he wants them to take a stand. You see the very first word in this uh, chapter. Stand. Now the ESV, I like the way the ESV uh, says, the ESV says, says it this way. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. That's what the ESV uh, says. That's what the Greek uh, uh, literally says. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. So, Paul is encouraging them here to stand. 
he wanted them to take a stand uh, to act like free men and not like slaves. But that's what the Judaizers were doing. Remember the Judaizers were Jewish. They, they converted to uh, Christianity from Judaism and they were still practicing the law which they didn't need to do and they were trying to persuade the Gentile Galatians to do the same thing to tell them that you had to be circumcised in order to be a Christian basically. I have to keep reminding us of, of who the Judaizers are. They were uh, Jews who were trying to tell the Galatians they had to be circumcised. They had to become Jews in order to become Christians. And that's wrong. That's, that's false. So I had to keep defining those terms so we can kind of track. So what's the big idea? The big idea is, again, to stand firm in the liberty to which we have been called. That is the big idea of these verses right here. To stand firm in the liberty to which we have been called. So we have two principles here. The first one is the big idea, stand firm in the liberty to which we have been called. So in the beginning here, in the very first verse, Paul talks about our calling, our commitment, and our caution. The calling is, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. That's the calling of every believer. The calling of every believer is to live in what? Freedom. The commitment is to stand firm, to stand fast. And then the caution is to not be subject to the yoke of slavery or not to be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now, freedom is the great, one of the great mega themes of the book of Galatians. And it is so for all Christians because God wants us to be free. Paul declares this from the outset as we see in this very first verse. But freedom has an enemy and that enemy is legalism. Freedom has an enemy and the enemy's name is legalism. And legalism is a tyrant that will love nothing better to do than to keep you enslaved. To bend your neck with a, a yoke. A burden. That's what legalism does. What is legalism? A, a simple definition. Legalism is basically treating that which is good as though it is essential. Making a law where there is no law. Whenever Christians turn something valuable to something ultimate, legalism is at work and you for forfeit freedoms. For instance, you had a lot of churches that had watch night service last night, which is nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with having a New Year's Eve service. But it can turn into legalistic where you make a person feel bad because they didn't go to church and bring the new year in the right way. That's what we dealt with in the church that we were part of. Like you had to go to church on New Year's Eve because you had to bring in the new year. In, what, what better place to be than in the house of the Lord? 
you know, instead of out there in the club or, or doing whatever, you know, you know, come to church, come to the house of the Lord on New Year's Eve. Bring the New Year right as if it's something magical about being in church, bringing the New Year in. But that's legalism. Is there anything wrong with going to church on New Year's Eve? No. But when you make it an essential, when it's not, it becomes legalistic. You're adding to a work of uh, salvation. And when you do that, you're forfeiting freedom. You don't have the freedom to sleep in <laughs> like you want to. Because I got to go to church. They say, you know, this, I, you know it's, it's the right way to bring in the new year. You know, God will bless you if you, if, if, if you come to church on, you know, New Year's Eve. That's how legalism looks. But we preserve our freedom in Christ when what is essential to God is essential to us. And everything else is kept in its place. Now, many Christians, believe it or not, come from legalistic backgrounds. They may not know it. Many of us come from, I know in here at our church, a lot of us come from legalistic backgrounds. We grew up in churches where it seemed almost everything was ultimately important, except what was important. You had churches that had battles and splits over the colors of the carpet. And the color of the padding in the pews, or whether, whether they have pews versus chairs, because pews were more holy, you know, more religious. Which they, you know, I love pews. But we have chairs in here, but you have churches that have battles over whether to take out the pews and put in chairs. Those are not essential things, but they can become what? Legalistic. And when you do that, you get trapped in bondage. Painful congregational meetings have happened because of the change in the music ministry, change in the carpet. It has happened. Why? Because you're making, you're making a good thing into an ultimate thing. But yet, you have churches that don't blink at the fact that their preacher is preaching false doctrine. And they can be very toxic places. So, so legalism, is, it, it, it lurks in the shadows of our hearts in almost every Christian community. And then go on for months and years without, I didn't know that I was in a legalistic system until I realized what legalism was. I thought that what we were doing was right because I didn't know better. But then once I realized what legalism was and God began to open my eyes, I said, we got to get out of this. But many times you're in it and don't even know it. Legalists lose sight of what ultimately counts. They start thinking that non-essentials are essentials. And they begin to insist that the good things are actually necessary things. And then they look down on people who don't think the same way they do. They become hypocrites. So in this context right here, the Judaizers were doing the same thing. They were the agitators. They sought to convince the Galatians that circumcision ultimately counted. That's what they sought to do. So they were turning something that's good 
into something that was ultimate. And the early apostles dealt with this in Acts 15 and 1 where it says um, they have to deal with the same thing. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The church dealt with that. Now, they had a council. It was called the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 where they had to address this question because you had these Jews who were living under the Jewish sacrificial system and all of a sudden you had all these Gentiles coming to the faith who were not Jewish and you had the Jews saying wreaking havoc in the church by saying unless you're circumcised you cannot be saved. And the apostles like, no, 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 that's wrong, no. You're becoming a stumbling block, block to your brother. No. And so they had the Jerusalem Council where they settled that issue. And it began in uh, Acts the 15th chapter. So, what happened here in Galatians is that they began to lose sight of what ultimately counted. And then they wanted to get circumcised. And Paul came in and said no. Now why do we have to be. Constantly vigilant. And on guard against. Legalism because. Legalism leads to pride. This is what Warren Worsby said. In talking about this. This is very uh, instructive right here. Excuse me. Warren Worsby the great uh, late Bible teacher. And theologian said this. He says legalism leads to pride. Number one, if I obey these rules, I'll become a more spiritual person. I am a great admirer of this religious leader, so I now submit myself to his system. Number two, I believe I have the strength to obey and improve myself. I do what I am told and measure up to the standard set for me. Number three, I'm making progress. I don't do some of the things I used to do. Other people compliment me on my obedience and my discipline. I can see that I am better than others in my fellowship. How wonderful to be so spiritual. Number four. If only others were like me. You see the progression? If only others were like me. God is certainly fortunate that I am his. I have a desire to share this with others so they can be as I am. Our group is growing. And we have a fine reputation. Too bad other groups are not as spiritual as we are. No matter how you look at it, legalism is an insidious, dangerous enemy. Insidious meaning toxic. When you abandon grace for law, you always lose. That's what Warren Worsby said. You see the progression of pride there with legalism? When you're legalistic, you end up making yourself the standard. God is not the standard. You are, and you measure yourself against yourself. And you want other people to measure themselves against you. To look at you as the example. And no, you need to get like me. You need to be like me. You need to be as religious and as spiritual as I am. You need to be as holy and as sanctified as I am. You need to have as good of a reputation as I have. You need to be just as prayerful as I am. That's what legalism leads to. It leads to pride. And so with the Judaizers, it was like that with the Pharisees. The Pharisees looked down on everyone else who wasn't like them. 
And they were destroying people's faith. That's why Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They were, they were hypocrites. And those who followed them, their converts were just as, as more wicked than they were. John Piper said this. He says, if you want God's favor, there are two ways to relate to him. You can relate to him either as an heir or you can relate to him as a slave. He says the difference is that a slave tries to become acceptable to his master by presenting him valuable service. But the heir trusts that the inheritance of his father is his by virtue of a will that was drawn up without his earning it at all. He said a slave is never quite sure he has done enough to please his master and win an honorable standing in the house. A son rests in the standing he has by virtue of his birth and the covenant his father made in his will to bless his children. Man, that is a metaphor of the Christian life. If we're a slave in, in, in the bad sense of trying to earn things from God, guess what? We'll never think that we're doing enough. And when you don't think you're doing enough, guess what? You're in bondage. But we went over this a couple weeks ago, back in Galatians, the fourth chapter. We are heirs of God. We, we have the inheritance already. We do what we do for God because of what he has done for us, not in order to get anything from him. Because an heir already what has it? They have the inheritance. You don't have to work for an inheritance. You inherit it. It what becomes yours. You don't do anything but just be an heir. We are heirs of Christ. We are heirs of all the spiritual blessings that Christ has. We don't have to do. We don't have to do anything to become acceptable to our master. We have already, uh, Paul says this in Ephesians 1. I think Ephesians 1 and 8. We are accepted in the beloved. We are already accepted by God through believing in Jesus Christ. So we don't have to become a slave and do things to be accepted by God. That's what people are trying to do now. Churches are right now probably filled with people who, never, who haven't set foot in church since Easter Sunday because they want to feel like they're doing God a favor by showing up at church on the first day of the year as if, you know, if I show up, God's going to bless my whole year. You have people who actually do that because we have people come to our church doing the same thing back, uh, you know, back in our legalistic church days. We had people come to church as if they're doing God a favor. Yeah, I'm a, I, 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 I got to start the year off right, man. You know, I got to, you know, got to start it off right. See them that first Sunday and never see them again. Because they're slaves. They're slaves to their sin. And they're never going to do it enough to please God. So in verse 2, we see faith in the law cannot be harmonized with faith in Christ. So Paul says here, Indeed, or behold, I, Paul say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Wow. Debtor meaning they're obligated. So faith in Christ and faith in the law are mutually exclusive. They're not the same thing. 
And obedience to the law, because of that, obedience to the law is an all or nothing proposition. So this is what happens when you lose sight of what ultimately counts. We allow legalism to set in. Will you slip back into slavery? Paul says quite, quite plainly that we lose Christ. He says Christ will be of what? No benefit to you. We lose the benefit of the blood that Christ shed for us. Christ is no longer any advantage to us because we've sought spiritual benefit somewhere else. We sought spiritual benefit in trying to be legalistic. When we try to be legalistic, we're losing the benefits that we had in Christ. I can't tell you how much bondage we were in, looking back on it. Being in that system. We're in churches like that. We're in denominations like that. They are in bondage. You talk to them, you try to pull them out, family members, friends. Hey man, that, that, that's, that's, that's not a good church. You know, that's a false gospel. It's like you're pulling them out and they're pulling against you. Why? Because they are in such bondage. They don't want to leave that bondage. It is bondage. Except the Spirit of the Lord works in that person's heart and changes their heart and pulls them out. It's bondage. It's slavery. They can't leave. That is That shows you how dangerous legalism is. And that's why Paul was stressing this to the Galatians. He says, you're going to lose Christ. Christ is no benefit to you. If we try to do it all ourselves, we will be left to fend for ourselves. When you try to do it yourself, you're left to fend for yourself. And guess what? We're weak and helpless and hopeless and we cannot fend for ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't redeem ourselves. We can't regenerate ourselves. We can't renew ourselves. That is only done through faith in Christ. How many times people are, are going to say, New Year, New Me? Every year. And it's the same old thing. Why? Because you're the same old sinner. The same old unregenerated person. The same old rebellious, God-denying person who's trying to build a life without God. Why? Because you're rejecting the very agent who can truly change you and bring you out of the slavery to yourself that you're in. Following his conversion, the, the, the great um, Enlightenment preacher, George Whitfield, I, I, I've read his biography before, and he said this. He admitted how he had gotten off track by losing sight of what ultimately counts. And this is what George Whitfield said. He preached in the uh, late 19th, uh, uh, early 20th century, late 1800s, early 1900s. And think about this. He says, God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. I learned that a man may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, he's meaning the communion, and yet not be a Christian. Say that again. He lost count of what ultimately counted 
And he said, God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. That means condemned to hell. I learned that a man may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet not be a Christian. I need to put that on a t-shirt. A bumper sticker. You have many people. They go to church. They at church this morning. They say, I pray to God. I'm like, what God? Who's God? <laughs> I pray to God. Well, I talk to God all the time. Me and God talk all the time. Exactly. <laughs> what is he telling you? Yeah, I talk to God all the time. What God? Define God. Who is God? And yet they can still be unregenerated. That is what is most important. And this is what Paul didn't want the Galatians to lose sight of. That's why he said to everyone who receives circumcision. He is under obligation to keep the whole law. And Paul knew that that was not possible. Because if you break one law. Guess what? You've broken the whole law. And you stand condemned. So the next section here is uh, verses 4 and 5. He says, You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace, for we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So Paul points out, those who are seeking to be justified by the law. The problem is they have been severed from Christ. Why? Because they're trying to do both things. You can't be justified by the law. And be justified by faith in Christ. You can't do both of those things. Those things are diametrically opposed to each other. Paul talked about what counted and what doesn't. What counts? Faith in Christ. What doesn't count? Trying to be justified by the law. He says you are fallen from what? Grace. When you try to obey the law, you are neglecting grace. Now I'm going to say this about grace. Grace is not a license to sin. You have these free grace people who, uh, it's called antinomianism, which, which is uh, the, uh, the false, the heretical uh, doctrine this says, in essence, you're saved by grace through faith, so you can go out and just sin because you're covered. That's what antinomianism is, in essence. And you got people who live that way now. They, you know, they're, oh, we're under grace, we're under grace, we're under grace. So guess what? You, you're free to go and sin. Why? Because you're, you're under grace. But that itself is bondage because guess what? You're going to be in bondage to your sins. You're not going to be ultimately free. Grace sets free. So Paul tells them, you have fallen from grace. Paul told them if they get circumcised, they've fallen from grace. And this was very controversial when he said this. He was saying they're not saved. You're falling from, from the grace that we have. Because circumcision ultimately does not matter. It is not ultimate. 
And that's what Paul was trying to stress to them. Being circumcised is not as big of a deal as you are making it, people. Now, this is a kind of a revolutionary insight that, that, that Paul is giving here. And this is what this tells us when I was reading this. What ultimately counts in this life is what ultimately matters on the day of judgment. And whether you're circumcised or not is not going to count on the day of judgment. That's not going to count. You're not going to have to give an account for whether you were circumcised or not. Or for men, of course. And the Galatians, the Judaizers needed to know this. But what makes a difference on the day of judgment? The very same reason why we're justified, and that is faith. Faith is going to make a difference on the day of judgment. Now, the kind of faith that makes difference on the day of judgment is the faith that justifies. It's the faith that justifies us, the, the faith that makes us right with God. Paul says, for through the Spirit we uh, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Paul is saying what ultimately matters is the kind of faith that trusts in Jesus that it expresses itself in love both for God and for others. This is the only kind of faith that will count on the last day. It is the only thing that ultimately matters is faith in Christ. And that faith in Christ is expressed in our love for God and for others. That faith in Christ is worked out in our love for God. You cannot have love for God and not have faith in Christ. A person tries, what people try to do, especially uh, unbelievers, they say they like the teachings of Christ, but they don't want Christ. They say, oh, Christ was a you know, good moral teacher. They say they don't believe in God, but they believe in the teachings of who? Of Christ. That's what they'll say. He who has received the Son must receive the Father who sent him. Jesus said this in John 5th chapter. You can't have the Son without the Father. You can't have the Father without receiving his Son whom he sent. Faith in Christ matters. It works itself out in love. That's why he says faith working through love. No earnest Christian is going to insist that what ultimately counts is stealing or lying or cheating or murder. Now those things are wrong to do, but they're not what ultimately counts because those same people can be saved. They can be regenerated. Some people may insist that water baptism ultimately counts or uh, political views ultimately count or the kind of church we go to or our view on some type of uh, Christian doctrine. We're tempted like all people to turn good things like circumcision into ultimate things. 
It doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about those things. But they don't ultimately count. They don't ultimately count. Again, it goes back to legalism. Making a law where there is a law. Making something good into something essential. You have Christians that have different views on uh, the end times. You have premillennials, postmillennials, and you have amillennialism. Post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib, uh, rapture theology. You have Christians who differ on those theologies. But guess what? Those are not ultimate things. They're not essential to salvation and faith in Christ. But you have some groups of Christians who make that an essential thing. You have some Christians who are teetotalers, you know, in the old Baptist tradition, a teetotaler is a person who just believes in no alcohol consumption at all. None, period. You have some who are teetotalers. And you have some who enjoy a glass of wine here and there. That's not an ultimate essential. That's not an ultimate thing. That's more of a personal conscience issue. Some people, I don't drink. I don't participate in drinking alcohol. Drinking alcohol is not a sin. But getting drunk is a sin. But for me, I just abstain from it, period. That, that does my conscience well to not uh, participate in any or even be around a lot of it. I only like being around. I mean, I'm at a restaurant that has a bar. That's different. And you got some people to make a law about that. You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't go to a restaurant where there's a bar. They, they, you know, they make that a law. But anyway, my point is, it doesn't bother me to go into a restaurant where there's a bar and people are drinking and I'm sitting down having a nice dinner with my wife or with me and her and some other friends. It doesn't bother me. I don't think about it. But if I go to a, a function at someone's house and, and they got alcohol everywhere and, you know, I'm the, I'm the only dry person in there, <laughs> I'm not going to be anybody's designated driver. It doesn't feel right. My conscience, you know, I just, uh, it doesn't jive with them well, so I, I, I will leave. But is that ultimately essential? No. What ultimately matters is faith in Christ. Do I have faith in Christ? Do I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Faith working itself through what? Love. So what Paul says here, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. He was saying uh, it's not ultimately essential to get circumcised. It's not ultimately essential whether you are a uh, Democrat or Republican. It doesn't ultimately count. Faith working through love is what matters. And again, as I say, I repeat myself, it is not to say that we shouldn't care about those things. It doesn't mean even those issues aren't important. Because they have real life implications. But it means that we must realize that these things are important insofar as they promote faith and produce love. If they don't, then we're missing out on what ultimately counts. And if we don't have love, we gain nothing. That's what Paul is telling the Galatians here. So whenever we're tempted to turn something good into something ultimate, we should ask ourselves th this question. 
what good will this do at the final judgment? What good will this do when I stand before the Lord? And we can use that test to test everything that we believe and everything that we do. And this will help us stand firm in the freedom uh, that we have and avoid submitting to a yoke of spiritual slavery. That's a good litmus test for that. Amen. Our second and last principle here covers the last six verses here. Verses 7 through 12. Standing firm requires rejecting destructive teaching of those who oppose the message of Christ. Standing firm requires us to reject destructive teachings of those who oppose the message of the cross of Christ. Standing firm means you're going to have to reject some things. You're going to have to reject those things that try to knock you off of the foundation from which you stand. Those things that try to knock you off of the foundation of Christ and him crucified, you need to reject. So let's look at verses 7 through 12 here. Paul first reminds them of how they started. Okay, verse 7. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul said, guys, you were off to a good start. You were running well. And then he tells them the, the source of their calling with the source of this new teaching. He says, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So let's look at those first three verses here. First, he reminds them to remember of how they started off so well in the Christian ways. Grace by saying, you were running well. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who caused you to get off track? That's a sermon all by itself. We can apply that to life, just period. Things that cause us to do it, to get off track from the purpose that God has for us. And then he has in the contrast the source of their calling with the source of this this new false teaching. And then to fear the cancerous nature of the heresy uh, by speaking of leaven. I want to give this illustration of what Paul was saying here. I was in about the 7th, uh, 8th grade summer program at Tuskegee University. It was called NYSP, National Youth Sports Program that we had every summer. And, uh, you know, we participate in different things. I learned how to swim in NYSP. Uh, you know, we played different sports. It was basically a youth sports program. It was federally funded, which I didn't know at that time. It was a federally funded uh, program, you know, in for in inner city kids. I was in Tuskegee in the country, but we still had that program. And we learned how to do, you know, swimming, basketball, badminton, tennis, baseball, soft, you know, all that stuff. Learn different sports. So we had to do track also. So... You know, we had to do the 400-meter uh, dash or whatever around the track around the stadium down at Tuskegee University Football Stadium. So <laughs> I'm in this race with, with some other people. I had to be like in the 6th or 7th grade at that time. And, you know, you just want to win a race, right? So the star gun went off. I was flying. I got out those gates so fast. 
And by the time I got around to the 200 meter mile halfway around, I just, something just hit me. And also, I just slowed down. Like, just like that. I went from finishing, I went from being in first place to finishing last. And I was last by a lot because I ended up having to walk across <laughs> the finish line because I, I got all, you know, kids do that. It's like, oh, like we was at the track meet a few weeks ago uh, in, in Birmingham, and we saw those kids running the, running the I guess, 200-meter, 800-meter, and some of them start off real fast. Man, they just like, go on, go on, go on, go on, go on. And then about halfway through, you just see them just kind of kind of slowing down and slowing down because they're not pacing themselves. And I did that when I was little, and a lot of uh, athletes do that. They start off well, but they don't finish well. You can bluff your way through a few laps, but when you're not in shape, guess what? You won't be able to sustain that pace that you need to finish the race. This can happen to professional Christians. This can happen in the Christian life. I remember, Lord, I had so much zeal when I got saved. Man, I was on, as they say, we was on fire for the Lord. I mean, woof. I came out, I came out, them starting blocks, hot. You know, when I, when I first got saved, when God saved me, I was, I was, man, you know, I'm in the Pentecost church. They always talked about being on fire for the Lord. And I was on fire for the Lord. I was, I was, uh, what is it? Baptized in the Holy Ghost, you know, fire baptized, you know, all that stuff. And man, I was on fire for the Lord. I had so much zeal. Well, the Bible says I had zeal, but not according to knowledge. You know, but I had so much zeal for I was just so on fire. I was, I was in church all the time. I was, I was on campus condemning everybody that was, you know. I, I had, we call it cage stage. You know, I was just on fire for the Lord. But as time went by, I realized how challenging the Christian life actually is. That you're not going to always be on fire. That your affections for Christ are not going to always be, you know, like Jeremiah said, like fire shut up in my bones. You know, you're not going to always. I, I, I was more going for a feeling. I was more of, of, of searching for feelings like, man, you feel like you're saved. You, you feel like you're on fire for the Lord. And so you just come out the gates like just, this is totally new to me. And that's what happens to a lot of Christians. They start well, but they don't finish well. And sometimes they don't even finish. Some of them apostatize because they had a false faith. They had a false conversion. And Jesus was familiar with this problem. He recognized that there are people who receive the word with joy. They make an enthusiastic profession of faith. He said this in the parable of the soils. He said they don't have any roots. He says they won't endure. This is in Matthew 13, 20, and 21. Because guess what? They, they, they were working on pure emotion. Emotion doesn't last long. It just doesn't. It's very fleeting. Very fleeting. The Christian life is the same way. And so Paul is worried that this is happening to the Galatians. He said what? You're running well. You ran well. In other words, and next he's asking essentially, What happened? What happened to you, Galatians? Who, who got you off track? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? They got to a good start, but something had gone terribly wrong. They stopped running the race, or at least they weren't running well. They weren't running with the strength of the Lord 
to finish. They were rather running on the strength of trying to obey the law, which, which basically wears you down. And again, that may be like some of us here. You know, you first heard the gospel, you see it with joy, you got out to a good start. But over time, as the race continued, we found ourselves running out of gas. Perhaps someone or something got in our way. We let the cares of this life choke the word and choke our spiritual enthusiasm. It can happen as a pastor. You know, we, we can start off enthusiastic about pastoral ministry. And I was talking about this with friend. you know, a lot of guys that planted churches around the same time we did, back in 2010, uh, you know, 2011, 2012, a lot of, a lot of guys who, who planted churches back then have, have their churches have, have closed down. They've, some of them even left ministry altogether. A couple of them have even apostatized. And it, you know, I'm like, man, we all started out together. A lot of them I, I knew personally. Some of them were friends. They just kind of poof. And it's all, I'm, you know, we're only here because of God's grace. It's not because of anything I've done. God, God has been gracious to us. And I thank him for that. For the ministry of the spirit in my life and surrounding me with, with good brothers. And, but a lot of them started out well. One, two hundred people. You know, and, and, and the next thing you know, just started, you know, we've always been a small church. I, I mean, do I wish it, it was bigger? Yes. But I had different goals and aspirations. You know, they wanted the, the, the get big quick uh, churches, you know, b- become mega church real fast. And, and, and you know, and we had disagreements about that. I said, man, that's not, that's not what church is about. It's not what being the pastor is about. It's about being faithful and committed to the, the work of ministry. But a lot of people do that. They, 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 they run out of gas. And for Christians, it can happen to us. But always remember this. God will never call us to something that will hinder us from obeying his truth. He would never do that. Paul says here, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. God would never call them to not obey his truth. God would never call them away from truth. The Christian life is a race. It has a beginning and it has an end. And there's a path on which to run and a prize to attain. The Christian race is often called a prize. What is the beginning of the Christian race? Conversion. You can't run a a race if you're not part of that race. The Christian race begins with conversion. When God saves us, when we're regenerated, when we're born again, guess what? We're put into that race with other believers. And the end of that line is final judgment. And what is that prize? The prize is eternal life. Which the Bible refers to as the crown of life. And that crown of life is held out for all those who endure to the what? The end. That's who it's for. That crown of life is for those who endure to the end. James 1 and 12 says this. 
He says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has prepared for those who love him. This is a race of endurance. It is a race of endurance. Paul said this in Philippians 3, 14 through 15, speaking of the race, he says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's pressing forward toward that prize. And what is that prize? The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That call of eternal life. That call of gospel faithfulness. That call of gospel endurance. We do what? We press forward with the power of the spirit who lives in us. We don't press forward in our own power. We press forward with the power of the Holy Spirit who does what? Enables us. We have gospel perseverance because the Holy Spirit enables us. The Holy Spirit perseveres us. And what is the path on which we run? That, that path is the gospel. What God has done in Christ to set sinners free from bondage is the track that we run on. It is the gospel. It is the gospel message. It is what? What God has done for us through Christ. That is the track that we run on. That is our focus. That's what we must always have our focus on. What has God done for us? Remember, the gospel is not about what we do. It is about what God has done for us through Christ. That is the track that we run on. When we get away from that, we get off track from what the gospel is about. And we try to do it what? In our own power, with our own strength. We make it about what we have to do instead of resting in what God has done for us. That's what we must focus on. Imagine running a race with all kinds of baggage draped over you. I mean, I did the Will Stop 5K back in August, and, and uh, you know, I can imagine running at the 3.2 miles with a suitcase in one hand, a, du a duffel bag in the other ha hand, and my 50-pound Navy sea bag on my back. I wouldn't have made it through the first mile. That's how many Christians try to run this race. That makes it impossible to run. And what are some of those ways that we can have unaddressed sin in our lives? The writer in Hebrews tells us this, to lay aside, Hebrews 12, 1, lay aside every weight and sin which so easily besets us or which clings, clings so loosely in order to do what? Run with endurance the race that is set before us. Unconfessed sin can be a hindrance. Paul says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? In a practical sense, broader implications, it can be unconfessed sins. It can be a grudge that you're holding against someone, which leads to bitterness. The Bible tells us, do not let a root of bitterness spring up in us. That can hinder us. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, covetousness, an unforgiving spirit. And hindrances can undermine our race altogether. Also, other people can hinder us from running the race. 
This is what happened to the Galatians. Others had stepped on the track. The gospel track that they were on. And troubled them. Causing them to veer away from. The obedience to the truth. And becoming Judaizers. Veering away from the gospel. And why is this important? Because Paul says a small group of people within the church can corrupt the whole. By saying what? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Your friend associations can hinder you. That doesn't mean that you can't have unsaved friends. I have friends who are not believers. But if those friends are hindering you from walking this race, from being obedient to the truth of God, you have to let them go. 86 them. Because that race is what? Important because you want to endure to the end. It can be very dangerous, especially if you're not spiritually mature. To handle friends who are in uh, abject denial and rejection of God. That can happen. And then lastly, we see him close this letter out. In verse 10. He says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord. That you have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. If I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off or mutilate themselves. So Paul expresses confidence that the Galatians would stand in the faith and liberty that they have in Christ. He says, I have confidence in you in the Lord. That you will adopt no other view. That you won't think that you need to be circumcised. Because of what? He has confidence they're going to stand in the freedom that they have in Christ. He's also confident in the ultimate demise of the false teachers. The one who disturbs you will do what? Bear judgment, whoever he is. They will be condemned. Those who hinder the saints will be condemned. Even the false teachers who do it. That's why um, we know false teachers. Man, people going to their churches, they're just listening to all types of stuff. I'm like, Lord, save those people from that. And Lord, bring judgment upon those false teachers. Bring them to repentance. Convict their souls. They're deceiving people. They're so deceptive. They're so deceptive. So Paul here ends this section. By showing his confidence. In their faith in Christ. In their liberty that they have in Christ. And confidence in the demise of the false teachers. He also addresses his ongoing persecutions. If I brethren still preach circumcision. Why am I being persecuted? Because the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. The stumbling block to the cross was circumcision. Why are you persecuting me. When I'm trying to teach you how to be what? Free. 
I'm trying to teach you how to be free. Why are you persecuting me? And he wished at the end here, he, sh he shows some graphic sarcasm to drive his point home by saying uh, he would wish that those who are troubling him would mutilate themselves. In other words, he was saying that he wished that those who were troubling him would castrate themselves. That they would circumcise themselves for real. That's what he was wishing upon them. I think there was a hint of uh, sarcasm there. I want to read this in conclusion as we uh, conclude this message here. Something I wrote down, I was meditating on. Running the race, looking to Jesus. The, the thing that we must remember as Christians, even myself, is that we must learn to rest in the grace of God as it works in us. Paul tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, we don't work for our salvation. We work from our salvation. We work out, we live out what God has worked in us by his spirit. So he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is him, God, who works in us. This is Philippians 2 and 13, by the way. It is him who works in you, believer, both to will and to do his good pleasure. It is the spirit of God who works in every believer who energizes us, basically, to do God's will and to do what is pleasing to him. That is how we rest in the grace of God. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15 and 10. I'm doing my conclusion here still. He says, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Talking about the other apostles. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It is God's grace who works in us. That is what we must as we leave out here today, through this year, every single day, Lord, your grace is at work in me. If we are struggling to run well, we must lean all the more on God who works in us. We're going to have times of struggle in this Christian life. We're going to have times where uh, we don't, quote, feel, can't trust our feelings, but we don't feel saved. We don't feel like we're justified. We don't feel like we're saints. Forget your feelings. What's the truth? What is the reality? The reality is that you lean into who you are in God. You know that God is working in you. There are times where we're going to stumble and struggle to return to our feet. It's going to happen. But as 1 Peter 5, uh, 10 and 11 says here, the God of all grace who called you to this uh, eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And don't stop running altogether. Persevere. Ask God to give you gospel perseverance. Because if we do, we're forfeiting a great prize. We're forfeiting a great prize when we do that. We run this race by looking to Jesus. You know, we've seen that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. 
look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. We run looking to who? Jesus. And I'm going to read this scripture and be done. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. May you be encouraged by the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder or the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the glory that was set before him endured the cross. Why did, Christ, why did Christ endure the cross? Because he saw the glory of going back to the right hand of his father set before him. The glory that he had, as he said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he has God to return him back to the glory that he had before. And that glory was seated at the Father's right hand. That is what caused Christ to endure the cross. The glory was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why do we endure? Because Christ endured. Why do we run this race? Because Christ already ran the race for us. He became sin who knew no sin. Christ already crossed that finish line. And now having finished his race, guess what? He is crowned with glory and honor. He is crowned with many crowns. He is in glory right now serving us as our high priest. Christ ran that race, people. And that is what motivates us to run. Why? Because our Savior already, already went before us. He already paved the way. And he is coming again. Conquering and to conquer, as Revelation 6 says. We who want to finish the race set before us must fix our gaze upon him who has already gone before us. We have to look to Christ. That's what Paul wanted the Galatians to do. You look to the one who's already run the race and who finished it. That's our motivation. To run this race, looking to Jesus. Paul said this at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. He told Timothy and he's telling us as believers... I have fought the good fight. And the good fight is the good fight of faith. Of believing in Christ. Because a lot of people, even unbelievers use that scripture. To say I fought the good fight. Like what good fight? Define good fight. He's talking about the good fight of faith. Faith in Christ. The good fight of, 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 of proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. The work that God called him to do. He said I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. The faith in who? Christ. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
that should put a twinkle in our eye. Because when we run this race, guess what? When we go to be with the Lord, we're going to receive our just reward from Him. Not condemnation as the unbelievers. We're going to be received into His kingdom. And He's going to give out those rewards and crowns to those who have endured the race. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you that this race for us as believers is not random. It's, it's not meaningless. It's not helpless. It is not hopeless. Lord, as Paul was admonishing the Galatians to, to stand fast in the liberty that they have, Lord, help us as believers to stand fast in the liberty that, that we have in Christ. To not try to be slaves to obeying the law. But to live and walk in the freedom that we have in Christ. And Lord I pray for those who are unbelievers. They are still in bondage. Not only to the law. But they are in bondage to their sins. They are in bondage to their impending condemnation. I pray Lord that you may save them. From their sins. Grant them repentance. Save them Father from their sins. Save them from the condemnation that is due them. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Help us as believers to not stray to the right or to the left, but to rest in what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And let us, Lord, as the Bible tells us, to stand firm in the liberty to which we have been called and not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.